And we'll start reading at verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and who was raised because of our justification. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we think of uh, your quickening, life-giving power, and uh, we need to be quickened this morning. We yes. we need to be made alive. Uh, we, we so quickly fall into dullness and deadness. and uh, Lord, I think of how the psalmist said, Quicken thou me and I will call upon thee. We need to be quickened and given life even to be able to call upon you. And uh, Father, we remember this morning of uh, how much is said concerning the ministration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Think of how when, uh, when Paul is thinking of the Christian life, he doesn't think of trying to uh, trying to have certain characteristics in our life. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and uh, patience and so on. Uh, it's not it's not something that he said we were supposed to come out of uh, come up with ourselves or produce out of ourselves. But he said the fruit of the Spirit is these things. And we think of how he said, we don't know how to pray, even in the area of prayer. He said, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And he said, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Lord, even prayer, <clears throat> he viewed as a, a working of the Spirit. And think of how he said in another place, striving according to his power that works in me mightily. And Lord, we could go on and on uh, in in preaching. It says this, the apostles preached the gospel with the Spirit sent down from heaven. And in conviction of sin, you said uh, when he's come, he will convict the world of sin. And so, Lord, we confess that we are utterly dependent upon your Holy Spirit today. I can't, uh, I can't even uh, think rightly, have a clear mind, or be able to say right things apart from the help of your Spirit. Uh, the Word can't be preached, and the Word can't be heard. And so, Father, we ask you for your Holy Spirit. We pray for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind, clarity, clear air. Lord, uh, I know what it's like to preach a sermon in a fog and for everybody to obviously be in a fog and not be able to hear any of it. So we ask you for quickening, life-giving power even now that we would speak and hear, that the air would be clear, 
and that there be a sense of the invisible realm and the divine. Lord, we know it's it's possible to talk about uh, angels and principalities and powers. It's possible to talk about God. It's possible to talk about the resurrection and have it all be kind of a never-never land, a fantasy, religious realm. And we uh, listen to it all, and it does. it's not real. It's just... Uh, it's just religion. And so, Lord, we ask you, would you please be real to us this morning? We come to you and we ask you. We look to you. We pray for help. We pray for utterance. We pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd apply these things and make it real to us. Lord, <clears throat> not, none of us have very long and uh, we'll be gone. And... Um, Lord, our, our lives are so short, they're passing away, and uh, I can think for myself, it wasn't very long at all ago that I was still in my teens and thinking how long it would be before I was 21, and uh, we just, uh, we think of the brevity of life this morning, and we ask you for, for help, for reality, for mercy, uh, that we, this morning, wouldn't have to uh, feel regret that we wasted this time. Paul, I, we thank Lord how Paul said of the Corinthians, he said, you come together for not for the better but for the worse. It's possible to gather as a church and have it be worse than if you didn't gather at all. And Lord, we don't want to come together this morning for the worse but for the better. We ask you for help from heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, for several weeks now, we've been centering our attention on verse 17 to 20, verses 17 to 21, concerning the characteristics of biblical, true biblical faith. Uh, we know from verse 12 and from verse 16 that every Christian, every true Christian, has the same kind of faith that Abraham did. We're of the faith of our father Abraham. And so we have the same kind of faith that he did. Not, uh, well, probably none of us have as much faith as Abraham did. But uh, what faith we do have is of the same sort as Abraham's. And so uh, the question then, uh, as we look at Abraham and his faith, what are the characteristics of true faith or biblical faith and uh, so far we've looked at 12 of these and uh, I'm sure that there are a lot more that could be gleaned from this passage as it seems like every time uh, as as always we come to the end of a section and I feel like well I'm starting to understand it now <laughs> and uh, maybe next time if I ever speak on this again uh, it'll be a little bit more coherent and you all, as always, are the guinea pigs that uh, get it in its original form. But at any rate, we've looked at 12 of these, and um, I'd like to just take a little time to go over the four that we looked at last week, the, the, the four final characteristics that we'll be looking at of uh, true biblical faith. The first one we looked at was that True biblical faith has an element of certainty or assurance in it. Abraham was fully persuaded. And uh, the reason for this element of certainty and assurance is that true biblical faith is something supernatural. It's a gift, a supernatural gift 
of the Holy Spirit. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's a supernatural thing whenever a person can make that confession. And uh, that's the reason for the element of certainty in it. If It's not based on probabilities. It's not based on human wisdom. It's based on this work of the Holy Spirit that enables you to confess that Jesus is Lord. Another way of saying it is that it has the element of certainty because it's, it's based on a revelation from God. Jesus is walking along with the disciples and He says, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. That's all you're going to get in the human realm. Ideas, opinions, probabilities. But then He says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There was a revelation to Peter. And that's how he had so much certainty. Thou art the Christ. didn't say, I believe you're the Christ. He didn't say, I think you're the Christ. He just said, Thou art the Christ. Uh, that was uh, a knowledge given to him and a certainty and an assurance given to him by a revelation from the Father. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's how you become a Christian. God shines in your heart and gives you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, regarding this element of certainty, we saw in the case of Abraham that uh, the worse things became, the more, more his faith was tried, and the more impossible the situation became, the more certain Abraham was, the more certain he became that uh, God was going to keep his word. Until it finally got to the point that when God told him to kill his own son, he was ready to do that, believing that God would raise him from the dead. Now that's supernatural. That his faith got stronger and stronger the more impossible things got. Um, I think it's a good illustration that someone used of, of, a, of, a, of a graph. You know, you have two lines on this graph. Well, I guess they go this direction. You've got this graph, and you've got, let's say you've got a profits and sales graph. So here's the sales, there's this line, you know, that goes like this, and here's the profits graph. Now, normally in the human realm, sales are up. Well, look, profits are up. You see the lines go together. But when you come to faith, you get along here, look, sales are way down. Profits are way up. <laughs> See, that tells you there's something supernatural going on. And that's what we're talking about in the realm of faith. It's a supernatural thing. It's not based on probability. And so, um, that was the first thing we saw last week concerning true biblical faith. And then secondly, we saw that true biblical faith actively gives glory to God. It actively glorifies Him. Abraham grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, something I didn't point out last week, this is the exact opposite of what we saw back in chapter 1. It says that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful. You remember? And instead, they gave glory to idols. 
Now, what Abraham did was the exact opposite. He stopped giving glory to idols when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol worshiper. He stopped giving glory to idols and giving them any credit, and he started giving the credit to God and giving glory to God. He turned from idols to serve the living God. Back in chapter 1, they turned from the living God to serve idols. They glorified him not as God. So Abraham gave God credit for being who he is. And from what we, from the information we have here in Romans and in the Old Testament, it seems like that one area where he really concentrated and gave God credit and gave him glory was in the area of his power. It says he was fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And God specifically encouraged him along that line. You remember he when he was talking to Abraham about this impossible promise, he reminded him, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I think Abraham concentrated on that. And he, and he began to think about that, and he says, nothing's too hard for the Lord. Glory to God, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Now, he was giving glory to God, fully persuaded that he was able. He believed in his power, and of course he believed in his, in his truthfulness and his goodness and his promise. So, true biblical faith gives glory to God. And then thirdly, we saw that there are degrees of true faith. Uh, Abraham, verse 20, uh, he grew strong in faith. You can grow in faith. It's possible to grow. You can have uh, the real thing, and yet that can be weak. And um, it's possible uh, according to the Bible, to pursue faith. Now, I think this is really encouraging. 1 Timothy 6.11 But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. It's possible for you to pursue faith. You can grow in faith and you can pursue it. There's things that you can do to grow in faith. And that's encouraging, isn't it? You're not just shut up to wherever you are right now. You can pursue this. Second Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Get together with real Christians. Spend your time with real Christians and uh, seek and pursue faith. None of us have very much faith. The Lord Jesus said that if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. So that tells us we don't have very much. Somebody uh, said to Hudson Taylor, you're, you're a man of great faith. He said, no, I'm a man of very little faith in a very great God. And when you factor in the very great God part, uh, it doesn't take very much. When you've got an infinite God, you can have, you can have less than a grain of mustard seed, and, it, and it's, it means something. And if we have any, that's the big thing. Whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. And then fourthly, we saw that true biblical faith inherits the promises of God. And uh, back in verse 18, uh, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. Uh, faith inherits the promises of God. If we will just put our trust in God, we will find out that 
that not one of the good words that he has given to us will fail, fall to the ground, if we'll just trust him and wait upon him. Be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, before we go on to the next th- the things I want to look at today, I, w- I just want to read you a few th- quotes about faith from uh, John Bunyan. And this is taken from his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus. Now this, I'm not going to give all of them, but I'll give a few here. He says, faith believes the word because it's true. Unbelief doubteth thereof because it's true. Unbelief doubts the Bible precisely because it is true. That's the reason it doubts it. Faith will make thee see love in the heart of Christ when with his mouth he gives reproofs. But unbelief will imagine wrath in his heart when with his mouth and word he he saith that he loves us. Just the opposite. Faith will give comfort in the midst of fears. But unbelief causeth fears in the midst of comforts. Be right in the middle of blessing. Faith will suck sweetness out of God's rod, but unbelief can find no comfort in the greatest mercies. Isn't that true? Faith makes great burdens light. Unbelief makes light ones intolerably heavy. Faith helps us when we're down. Unbelief throws us down when we're up. Faith brings us near to God when we are far from Him, but unbelief puts us far from God when we're near to Him. Faith purifies the heart, but unbelief keeps it polluted and impure. Faith makes us see preciousness in Christ, but unbelief sees no form, beauty, or comeliness in Him. By faith we have our life in Christ's fullness. By unbelief we starve and pine away. Faith will show us more excellency in things not seen than in them that are. Unbelief sees more of things that are than in things that will be hereafter. Faith makes the ways of God pleasant and admirable, but unbelief makes them heavy and hard. I mean, you know, it's not the trial. It's our unbelief in the trial most of the time. That's the biggest thing. By faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob possessed the land of promise, but because of unbelief, neither Aaron, nor Moses, nor Miriam could get thither. By faith, Peter walked on the water, but by unbelief, he began to sink. Thus might many more be added, this is Bunyan speaking, which for brevity's sake I omit, beseeching every one that thinketh he hath a soul to save or be damned, to take heed to unbelief lest seen there is a promise left us of entering into his rest any of us by unbelief should indeed come short of it well we see these characteristics in Abraham's faith Uh, he saw things as they really were he saw the invisible realm and that's why he could press on he wasn't looking at the outward visible things he was looking at the invisible reality of who God is and his faithfulness Well, that leads us on then today to verses 22 to 25, and these are the verses that I want us to look at today. Notice that verse 22 begins with the word therefore. Now, 
In this section that we've been looking at from 17 to 21, we've seen all these characteristics of Abraham's faith. Uh, He didn't grow weak. uh, He grew strong and he didn't waver and so on. He gave glory to God. And then Paul gets to verse 22 and he says, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now what does he mean? Therefore. What was he saying? Well, uh, you could answer something like this. You say, look at how great Abraham's faith was. He didn't waver in unbelief. He gave glory to God. He was fully persuaded that what God had said would come to pass. He trusted the Lord. He grew strong. And uh, so in light of that great faith, no wonder God would count his faith for righteousness. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, is that what Paul was saying? I don't think that's what he was saying. What was he saying? Well, I think it was something like this. He was saying this. Look at Abraham. It's very clear that he was totally cast upon God and not upon himself. He was cast upon God and his promise. He didn't have anything in himself. When he looked at himself, all he saw was need and inability and emptiness and death. And so he put his faith totally in the Lord, put all of his hope in him, and truly, uh, completely trusted in God and not in himself. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see the difference? He's saying Abraham looked away from himself to God. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, it's not our faith as such that God counts as righteousness. It's our faith in him and him alone. Believing in God, trusting in him, his provision, his power, his promise, and his provision in Christ. Faith links us to him. Now, let me try to give an example of this. You remember in... Uh, The New Testament, there was a woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years. And Jesus is walking in a crowd of people that are pressing around him. And all of a sudden he says, power, who touched me? Power has gone out of me. He was aware that power had gone out of him. And that power that went out of him healed this woman. And he turns and talks to her. And at the end of the time, he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Now, if it was her faith that made her well, why'd she even need to touch him? You know, she could have just had faith back here. What happened was she touched him and power went out of her. And it was his power that made her well. It wasn't her faith that made her well. You see that? It's so obvious. Power went out of him and healed her. Why does Jesus say your faith has made you well? Because he wants to emphasize the channel through which that power came to her that would not have come to her if she hadn't have believed him, you see. Now that's what's happening here. God's emphasizing that Abraham was justified by faith. He would not have been justified if he hadn't been cast upon God and put his trust in God. But it wasn't the faith itself that justified him. It was God, Christ's righteousness. That justified him. So, uh, faith is the channel that God has chosen to link us to Himself and to His righteousness. Now, if you wanted to sum all this up, I think you could do it like this Faith 
in its very nature looks away from self and puts confidence in God. Therefore, God has chosen faith to be the channel by which we receive justification. So Paul has been talking here all these things about Abraham's faith, how he looked to God. He didn't trust in himself. He didn't have anything in himself. He's trusting in God. He's trusting in God. And he says, therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. If you want to be saved, God's not looking at your big faith. What he's looking at is whether or not you've given up on yourself and put your trust in him and what, who he is and what Christ has done. Okay, well then verse 23 and 24. Now it was not written for his sake only. or Now it was not for his sake only it was written that it was reckoned to him. But for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now what a wonderful thing this is. God didn't give us the Bible. And particularly, he didn't give us this account of Abraham as some kind of ancient history to entertain or inform us. He gave this to us because it's for us. Uh, these things were written down for us because they apply to us. It was not for his sake only that it was written, but for us. He says, it was written for our sake. So the reason... And you go back, and here's you come upon this ancient document, you know, and you go back here, and 2,000 years ago, I mean 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago, there was a guy named Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. God didn't write that down in order to tell us about Abraham. He wrote it down to tell you that if you'll believe God, he'll count it to you for righteousness. That's what he's saying. The whole Bible was written for us. Now let's look at some verses on this. And I think we'll actually turn to these. Romans 15.4 Paul says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. The reason the Bible was written, the reason the Old Testament was written, was it was written for Christians. Well, that's something, isn't it? The Old Testament was written for Christians. It was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Written for us. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about the accounts there of what the people did. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10.6, these things happened as examples for us. And then if you go on down to verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So those things back, that happened back there in the wilderness when those people were doing different things that were wrong and various consequences, uh, he says that was all written down for us. That was... 3,500 years ago was written down for our instruction. Let me give you another one. 1 Corinthians uh, 9. Let's go back a chapter. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 9. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So God made that law about muzzling the ox. 
Well, it was partly for oxen, yes, but the big meaning was for us. He wrote that law for us to tell us that you ought to support people in the ministry. See how relevant this is? The, the whole Old Testament is for us. Second Timothy 3, one more we'll look at. Second Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture. Now, of course, at the time he was writing this, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. All Scripture, thinking of the Old Testament, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So he's saying you can take the Old Testament. Now, you've got to teach it rightly as Christ would. You can't go back. It's not meant, this account of Abraham was not meant to put us back under the law or put us back in the Old Testament. It was meant to point us to Christ. That's the way Paul interprets it, you see. But it was written for us who are Christians. You know, this is a big thing. You're reading there in the Proverbs, you know, you're reading this verse and it says, My son, give me your heart. And you think, Oh, the Lord is calling me to give give him my heart. And along comes a Bible scholar and he says, No, that wasn't for you. That was Solomon talking to one of his sons. And that's not for you, that's for Solomon's son. See? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews twelve, he says, You have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to son, saying, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. See that? It speaks to you. It was written and given to you. Uh, amazing verse in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus is talking to the to the Sadducees, and he says, "Haven't you read that which was spoken by God to you, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob?'" Well, the Bible scholar could come along and say, "No, he did. God didn't speak that." To the Sadducees, he spoke it to Moses. You remember at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember? But Jesus says, it was spoken to you by God. Amazing thing. Vance Havner, uh, an old Baptist preacher that died a number of years ago, he said, said, I, uh, I started... Studying the Bible after I became a Christian, I said, look at, look at this promise that God has given me. What a wonderful promise. And somebody said, no, well, that's not for our dispensation. That's for the Jews. That's not for you. That promise is not for you. And so he was reading somewhere else in the Bible, and somebody said, no, 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 that's not. That was for the apostles only. And he said, he kept going around, and finally he only had one verse left in the whole Bible. Let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> he said, the happiest fellow in the world is a brand new Christian before he's met too many Bible scholars. And that's, we, these things are written to us. The Bible is given to us. The New Testament, it's not a history book about how the church used to be before the canon was completed or something like that. It's It's a... It's a record of what is for us. That's what it's about. Well, 
That takes us to the last half of verse 24. Now let's read verse 23 again. Not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now the question comes up. Who was it that raised Christ from the dead? And for that matter, who was it that delivered him up? It says, we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And, and then it says, Jesus who was delivered up. Who delivered him up? Who raised him from the dead? Well, it depends on where you're reading in the Bible. Because some places say that Jesus delivered himself up and raised himself up. What did he say? Destroy this temple. Speaking of the temple of his body. And in three days, I will raise it up. He says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. That's incredible. I'll raise myself from the dead. Well, who delivered up Jesus? Well, he delivered himself up. He says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This commandment I've received of my Father. Paul's talking about that in Galatians 2.20. He says, The Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. So you could say Christ died. He's, he's the only man who's ever laid down his life. I mean, you say, here's some guy. You say, well, this guy here committed suicide. He took his own life. No, he didn't because if he hadn't done a thing... He would have died anyway, eventually, just a matter of time. But Christ deliberately gave up his life. He released his spirit. He gave up his spirit, it says. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But that's not what we have here. Here, you almost get the feeling that Christ was passive. Because it says... If we believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, that is, believe in God, who was delivered up, passively delivered up, who by By God. God delivered Him up because of our transgressions and raised, passively raised, doesn't say and rose, it says and raised. He was delivered up and was raised. So the emphasis here is uh, on the fact that God the Father uh, delivered up Christ and raised him from the dead. Now, what's God saying to us here? Uh, when you see that Christ here is viewed as almost passive in this, what's God saying? Well, this is very important, and it's something we've got to be clear on. It was God the Father who delivered up Christ to die. God was the one who put him to death. He delivered him up to die. Let's say it like this. It was God the Father who killed Jesus Christ. Now that's what it is. That is exactly what it means. He used the hands of wicked men to do it, but he's the one that delivered him up. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Gentiles. How do we know that? Because what, why was Jesus in the garden sweating drops of blood and praying 
and crying out with strong tears and crying to the Father. It wasn't because he was going to die physically at the hands of the of the Romans on a cross. That wasn't why. I mean, think of Socrates. Here's a, here's a man that doesn't even compare to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Socrates is ready to drink the hemlock cup just like he was getting ready to go to sleep. And they say that when you drink that hemlock that it's excruciatingly painful death. And he's just ready to just take it just like, you know, get a drink of water before you go to bed. And here's Jesus out here facing death, crying out, sweating drops of blood. Why? Because he wasn't it wasn't the cross. It wasn't the physical things related to that that he was concerned about. The cup, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of the wrath of God. And beloved, the devil didn't have the wrath of God in a cup. He wasn't the one that had the power over that, and the Jews didn't have the power over that, and the Romans didn't have the power over that. You see? What was the big thing about Christ? death was that it was God giving him the cup the father giving him the cup and that that cup involved all that was related to his death including his physical sufferings so just the emphasis here is this that the Lord Jesus Christ was executed by God isn't that something that immediately destroys every false view of the atonement that has ever been put forward in church history. And it also immediately destroys a lot of movies that have been made. Because Christ's death, first of all, it wasn't primarily his physical death at all. And it, it wasn't some kind of ransom to the devil. It wasn't something that men had power over him and he was some kind of a martyr. They, you remember Jesus is carrying the cross and the women are weeping and he says, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And for your children. He wasn't an object of pity. He willingly was submitting himself to the Father's wrath. The idea that the atonement... Well, I don't know how many of you are familiar with some of the ideas of the atonement. Some say that it was a, he was setting an example. Well, the idea of, that the atonement was primarily an example goes right out the window when, when you realize God was the one that was putting him to death, that poured out his wrath upon him. It pleased the Father to crush him. The idea that it was some kind of a show or a governmental uh, thing where God was uh, advancing his moral government, that goes right out the window when you realize that, that Christ was bearing the wrath of God. On the cross. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. He says, He was delivered up by the Father for our offenses. There's only one explanation of the cross, and that is Christ was bearing our sins in His own body on the cross, and God was pouring out His wrath upon Christ for what we should have received. So salvation is not just a matter of believing on the one who died, it's believing on the one who delivered him up to die. If we believe on him that raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, the one who delivered him up to die so that his justice could be satisfied, and the one who raised him again from the dead. Well, um, 
you can see here again how parallel our faith is to the faith of Abraham. He believed God. And he believed God as the one who raises the dead. And he believed God as the one, the promise of God that he, he in, in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed and justified in God's sight. That's the same thing we believe. Only we come after the fact instead of before. Well, finally then, the last thing here, verse 25. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, um, that presents a problem, doesn't it? He was delivered up because of our transgressions. We can see that, but how is it? How could it be that he was raised because of our justification? How did his resurrection have anything to do with our justification? I can see how he died for our sins, but I can't see how his resurrection has anything to do with my justification. And amazingly enough, there has been all kinds of disagreement as to the, the meaning of this verse and the proper translation of the verse. And it, it's because of a little word for... Um, which there are several words in the Greek for four, but this, this word here uh, properly means because of. And that's the way the New American Standard has translated it. Normally, it, it's translated because of. But there's some questions about that. But anyway, uh, the word for. And uh, the New American Standard has followed the usual translation uh, by translating it because of. Now look at this. He was delivered up because of our sins. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? So here's our, our sins, and because of our sins, Christ dies on the cross. Now, go to the next part. He was raised because of our justification. So here's our justification, and because of our justification, Christ was raised. See that? See why it presents a problem? And uh, this is what has caused the controversy about it. Normally, this is the way it ought to be translated, and uh, that's the way that it's taken here in the New American Standard. And um, there's a lot that can be said and arguing that it ought to be translated. I mean, why would you change the meaning of the word between the first half of the verse and the second half, you see? Because of. Uh, that's the normal way of translating it. That's the way they followed here. And if that's the right way here, then Paul is saying something very wonderful. What's he saying? Well, because of our justification, Christ was raised. That is, because the debt was paid in full, it was impossible for God to leave him in the grave. Because of our justification, he was raised again. Now, let me try to um, explain this. Um, tax time comes on properties at the end of the year. I don't know about how the rest of you do, but I usually make out my check as soon as I get that uh, tax bill. And then I put it up and wait until the 28th or 29th of December <laughs> to take that thing in and pay it because you have till the end of the year. But you go in there and you give them the money and they 
once, you know, they're holding this bill against you. Once the money is paid, they don't have any right to do that any longer. They stamp that thing, paid. In fact, they've got two. They've got their copy and yours, and they stand there and go like this on every sheet twice. Paid, 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 paid. And you're given a receipt that says paid, and you're given a thing that says your taxes are paid. And if they come back to you and say, look, you owe this money, you say, no, I don't. Look, see this? Now that's what it is with the resurrection. As long as Christ was in the grave, there's no guarantee that things are paid. But once everything is paid in full, God can no longer justly hold him in the grave. And he's raised again because of our justification. That is, it as a proof and a guarantee that the price is paid in full, he rose again. Are you getting this? So every time you see the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead, you have a guarantee right there. Everything was paid in full. If it hadn't been paid in full, he'd still be in the grave. I mean, paid in full. That means there's nothing whatsoever that you have to do to pay for your salvation. Nothing. There's nothing left to be paid. You still got in your head there's something to be paid. There's nothing left to be paid. You just give up and trust in what Christ has done. He was raised again because of the fact that he'd paid everything. Now let me give the other possibility. There's others who say no. The preposition for here should be taken to point backwards in the first half of the verse and forwards in the second half. Now that's kind of questionable, but it may be true. In that case, Paul would be saying something like this. He's saying, Christ died because of our sins. That points backwards. And He was raised in order to our justification. In order to justify us. Now that could be true too. Um, If we do take it that way, then we need to be careful um, not to separate in our minds the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not the idea that this is like two separate things, but they're part of one act of God. And Christ's resurrection is part of our salvation and our justification just the way His death is. You take them both together. And so we see a little bit later, nine verses later, He says we're justified by His blood. So that's His death. You can't separate these things out. So we're justified by this one act of death and resurrection. We are justified and saved. That might be what it means. Actually, the way I just uh, leave this thing today is this. We need to remember this. Both of these possible interpretations are true. Either way you would translate it. It's a translation problem. Um, The most literal is what we have in the New American Standard. And I like that, but uh, the other one may be right. But either way, don't lose this. They're both true. (laughs) They're both true. Christ saves us and justifies us completely by His death and resurrection. And He ever lives now to make intercession for us. But His resurrection is a proof that the price was paid in full. So both of those things are solid scriptural truths. And... um, so we're not shut up to the Bible scholars as far as what proper way of translating. Uh, we have the rest of the Word of God.
Well, such as it is, we are done with chapter 4 anyway. And um, I don't know, maybe next time, Lord willing, we may go on to chapter 5. Uh, Romans is one of those books that keeps getting better and better. We're getting, we're starting to approach to begin to get into the good stuff. Actually, that's not true because we've been in it all along, haven't we? But the gospel. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, separated under the gospel of God. Well, let's pray. Lord, we can't imagine the grace that you would write a book thousands of years ago for us. And um, we thank you so much that we have a living word and that the things that you've done for others these principles that you've laid down of your dealings with men are still true and they've always been true and we're so thankful that um, we can believe on the same God that Abraham believed on and we can be justified by putting our trust in you and your promise we thank you we thank you Lord Jesus that you came and submitted yourself to the will of the Father to be delivered up to be handed over for our sins and to be raised for our justification. I pray that you'd help those who don't know you here today to realize that the work really has been finished and the price really has been paid in full. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have our meal time together. May the Lord help us to make the most of the time of fellowship.